When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian. You are listening to episode 358 of Sustainable Minimalists, a two to three time per week show depending on the week, about intentional and eco-minimalist living. When it comes to decluttering questions that you all send to me, I tend to get amalgamations of a similar question all the time. And the question is, how do we sort through and declutter the stuff of our deceased loved one? We humans, we have many irksome habits, but one in particular is, of course, we tend to attach meaning to physical items. Even though we cognitively know that our memories are separate from the stuff, there is emotion embedded in the stuff, embedded within our grandmother's china, or the smell of our father's shaving cream, or our partner's slippers. So today I'm asking my guest the questions that you all ask me. How does sorting through our deceased loved one's items fit within the grieving process? How do we know when is the right time to embark on this emotionally trying job? What is step one? Where do we even begin? And of course, if you haven't lost someone recently, which I certainly hope you have not, my guest and I today touch on how to best support the people in our lives who have and who are sorting through the stuff. Today, I'm speaking with Krista St. Germain. Krista is a grief expert, and she is the host of the Widowed Mom podcast. A quick note before we get into it today, Krista details her own journey to becoming a widowed mom. Her journey does detail drunk driving, so her story may be difficult for some listeners, and it definitely may not be suitable for young ears. You can go ahead and skip to around the four-ish minute mark of this show and get straight into the content. Krista, I am so excited to talk to you today. How are you? Ah, oh, thank you for having me. I am well. I always love it when people want to talk about grief. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are going to be helping to answer one of my listeners' most frequent, most pressing questions, which is, what are we supposed to do with our deceased loved one's items? So we're going to talk about all of that. But before we do, tell us about your personal journey towards becoming a post-traumatic growth and grief expert and the host of the Widowed Mom podcast. How did how did we get here? Literally by accident. It was not something I ever set out to do. But when I was 40, my husband and I were coming back from a trip that we had taken. It was my second marriage. 
my first one kind of went down in flames. Second marriage was like the redemption story, proof that true love is possible. Amazing, you know, relationships can happen. And we were coming back from this trip and I had a flat tire, even though we had AAA, typical stubborn man that he was, no, I'll just change the tire. You know, we'll get home faster if I change the tire. So he was trying to get the tire out of the trunk of my car. And I was standing by the side of the road, texting my daughter who was 12 at the time to tell her we were going to be late. And a car, a driver that we later found out had both meth and alcohol in his system. And it was, you know, 530 on a Sunday. So it's still daylight. Did not see our hazard lights, did not break, just crashed right into the back of Hugo's Durango and trapped him in between his car and mine. So I went from feeling like I was on a complete high in my life and my best days were in front of me to feeling like the rug got completely ripped out from under me and really difficult to imagine ever truly being happy again. Um, so just having my own grief experience is what made me realize that there were so many <laughs> pieces of misinformation out there. I didn't really know anything about grief. And then when I went to look for help, what I found was just not helpful. Fast forward quite a bit, right? When I actually did find some things that were helpful and did a whole bunch of my own reading and I learned about life coaching specifically and kind of had to adjust it and make it specific to grief, and I got on what I would call the other side of it, even though it never really ends. That's what I decided I really wanted to do, right? Is to help other widows who were in my position not <laughs> be so desperate for the resources. Hmm. Well, I must be honest, Krista. I very rarely find myself at a loss for words, but your story knocked the wind out of my sails. I I mean, I've had bouts of grief losing people, but it sounds like for you, it was grief on top of trauma. And so I, my heart goes out to you. I don't even know how one would begin crawling out from under all of that. Tell me about how once you crawled out of the hole, the haze, and you had a house full of happy memories, you mentioned your marriage was your redemption story. First of all, what was it like to be surrounded by your husband's items? And second of all, when did you know, like what went on inside when you knew it was time to go through his items? Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the, it was equal parts comfort and equal parts sadness and, and loss and grief, right? So I, there was a part of me that loved his belongings and having them around me. And then another part of me... <laughs> absolutely hated what they meant to me in that moment. Yeah, it, it's just really nuanced. It's not one thing or the other. It's all the things. I looked back in my journal. I used to keep a journal. In those early days, I would write to him and that really felt good to me, right? I would tell him about my day and I would just you know, let him know what, what was going on for me. And about the three-month mark, not that timelines matter, are appropriate, the timelines have nothing to do with anything, but for me, about the three-month mark is when I first decided I was ready to let some things go. And I started with the master closet. I just picked a day where my kids were busy and they weren't home, and I decided that I would tackle the things that had the least emotional pull to me first. So his work pants, for some reason, the work pants didn't, they didn't bother me as much as uh, say like 
he was really known for wearing plaid shirts and he had a ton of plaid shirts and he had a little literal process in his dressing where he would, all his plaid shirts were in one row and then all the work pants were below them. And every day his process was, he would grab one shirt and one pair of pants. The next one's in line. Like he didn't try to match them or anything. He would just grab the next ones. So the pants were easy for me to, to part with. I just decided somebody else could use them more than me, right? The shirts, it took a lot longer. The shoes, he had this one pair of Doc Martens that he bought repeatedly. He loved this particular shoe. He bought it many, many times. And that particular shoe, it was hard for me to let go of, right? The running shoes were hard for me to let go of. But then there were a bunch of other shoes that weren't so hard. So that day, I literally gathered 12 bags. I I checked it's in my my journal. And I took them to an organization that felt good to me because I knew that they didn't actually charge people. They just gave you clothes. If you needed clothes, you could get clothes there. And so that's that's where I started. And then over time, I let it unfold. I never put pressure on myself. I noticed my brain worry about what other people would think if I wasn't getting rid of stuff or if I was still holding on to stuff. And I just gave myself permission to not worry about it right? And do it on my timeline. And sometimes it would take a while. So there would be like I had, we had these little uh, light up letters in our bedroom, uh, an H letter and a K letter, you know, Hugo and Krista. And I remember walking by those letters just over and over and over and thinking, I think maybe it's time to let the H, to let the H go, like to bless somebody with the, the H letter. And my daughter's friend, her name is Hannah. And so I didn't force myself, but at a certain point, it just felt right to me to ask Hannah if she wanted that. So it was that. It was never pressing myself. It was always kind of meeting myself where I was and noticing that my brain wanted to really worry about what other people thought and just letting it go. Yeah. You speak really well there to the how, the how you did it. You mentioned, you know, you essentially said tackling the low hanging fruit first, right? The pants didn't tug at your heartstrings. So that was a low hanging fruit for you. And you also mentioned giving these items away to a recipient that felt right for you. And I always do recommend that instead of giving it to a nameless, faceless front door where we just drop it and go for people who do have trouble letting stuff go. I think giving it to an actual person that you know, or an actual organization that means something to you is a powerful way to get the stuff moving out. But I'd love to talk to you more about the why. What are your thoughts on going through someone else's stuff, a deceased loved one's stuff? What are your thoughts on that action, that activity as part of the grieving process? Does it fit in anywhere? Oh, yeah. In my mind, it's very relevant to grief, right? Because To me, grieving is comprised of thoughts and feelings that we have about a perceived loss, right? Very natural human experience, but it's the thoughts and feelings that we have about a perceived loss. And so going through someone's things is kind of like a thought finder, is a way that we get to see the feelings that are there so that we can feel them. And I'm not saying it feels amazing, (laughs) but many of our thoughts and feelings about a loved one don't. Um, Again, I wouldn't want anyone to think, well, if I don't do this, then I've done something wrong and I'm missing out on an important part of healing and I can never get that back. Or, you know, we don't want to be dogmatic about it. But yes, for sure, there are opportunities to look at 
what mattered to us about this person and relive memories about this person and allow the tears to fall if they need to, you know, and feelings to be felt. And and that to me can be a, a beautiful, painful and important part of, of a loss. Why is it so hard for us as humans to part with the sentiment behind the item? I mean, cognitively, it's just a thing, right? But it's so much more than a thing because we have put emotion. We have in fused emotion into the item. So why do we attach sentiment to physical things? Do you have anything to say on yeah. that? You know, I think it's, I mean, it, I just would say we all do it, right? There, We all have stories about our things. And I think it's, for me, less useful to worry about why we do that and more useful to know that we do and that we can do it on purpose, right? Because a lot of what we make things mean creates unnecessary suffering. So when we make it mean that we're getting rid of something and therefore we're leaving them behind or we're losing them or we're forgetting them or, you know, we're erasing them. And I hear widows that I coach and they almost always have thoughts like that. And I did too. But when we hang on to that story and we make this thing, right, getting rid of it means something it doesn't have to mean, that's what we want to pay attention to. Because that's where the suffering comes from. Donating an item or selling it or, you know, whatever we might decide to do with it does not mean we're erasing them. That's, that's it's impossible, right? They exist in our mind. I believe you call this the creation of suffering over stuff. And I think it's when we attach some sort of shame or negative emotion or blame associated with the act of decluttering. Like if we're getting rid of these things, does that mean we were a bad wife or a bad daughter? Can you speak more to that phenomenon as you see it play out with your clients? Because I know my mom, she might be listening right now. Her basement is filled with items of her mom's who passed away a few years ago. And she does not want to get rid of the things because she does not want to be a bad daughter. I don't know if she'd verbalize it that way, but she feels some sort of responsibility to her deceased mother through her things. So how does that play out in real life? Yeah. Yeah. So it's looking at like, what are the stories that we have in our minds about this stuff, right? Because the the stuff, like like you said before, it's just stuff. It doesn't actually create any emotion. Getting rid of it doesn't create guilt or shame. It's the story that our mind is telling us, the sentence that we have about what it means. And so if we can separate ourselves as the thinker from the actual thoughts we think about the stuff, right, then we can see, oh, it's not getting rid of the stuff that causes the suffering. It's this thought that if I get rid of the stuff, I'm a bad daughter, right? Or I'm a bad wife, or I don't care, or I didn't love them enough, or I'm moving on too soon, or all of these optional thoughts, sentences, stories right, that we have in our mind. And we have them for good reason, because we're marinating in cultures that teach us these thoughts. But they, the truth is that they aren't us, right? They aren't true unless we continue to think them and believe them and find evidence for them. And so that's what I do a lot of, is helping my clients see the difference between what the actual facts are, right, the stuff that they died, and then what the thoughts are, the stories that are causing suffering. I'm a bad daughter. They would be upset with me. I'm erasing them. And then once we can separate those two and we can start to see that it really isn't the stuff that causes the suffering, then we can decide what we want to do with those thoughts. Do I want to keep believing those thoughts? Because if they aren't useful to me, I don't have to. That's really, really powerful. 
And it's not just suffering around getting rid of stuff. Sometimes it's suffering around keeping stuff, right? When we keep stuff, we want to, and then we judge ourselves for keeping it. Yeah. I wonder how much of this conversation we're having today is person-specific to their own journey through grief. I think about my grandmother. So I was just talking about her with my mom having her stuff. But when my grandmother was alive and my grandfather died, I would say within a week, all his stuff was gone from the house. And I was so judgy. I was a teenager. I was so frustrated and angry at her. How could she just erase his presence from the house but it really, I feel, I look back on that now and I feel bad that I felt so many things because it was really her grief journey and she was working through her own grief by working through his stuff. Yeah, she, she wasn't wrong, but neither were you, right? That was your experience of it was to be upset and wish that those things hadn't gone away because you weren't ready. And her experience, for whatever reason, it probably felt best to her to get rid of those things. But nobody was right and nobody was wrong. Well, Krista, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to ask you for your best thoughts on preserving the memory, the love that we have for the person without holding on to all the stuff. I'm sure there are ways to do it. <laughs> I think you're the person to ask. We're going to get there after a quick word from our sponsors. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items, and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high-quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game-changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. And we're back. Today I'm speaking with Krista St. Germain. She is a master certified life coach. She's a post-traumatic growth and grief expert, and she's also the host of the Widowed Mom 
podcast. Before the break, we were discussing the why. Why should we even consider (laughs) going through our loved one's items? Why would we even embark on such a emotional experience. And I should say, I know plenty of people who just don't even go through that experience. It's easier in some ways to pack the stuff up, put it in the attic or put it in the basement. So I guess before we move on, let's back up and let me ask you, when you got to the other side and you went through a household worth of your husband's possessions, did you feel better or did you not? I mean, was it worth it or not? So it's such an interesting question. Yes, I felt better. And also I felt worse, right? It's, <laughs> we wouldn't it be great? We humans, we want everything to be just like to fit neatly in some container. But I, I think that's what, what makes it easier is when we make space for the and, right? When we, we decide, okay, in some ways I am going to feel better. And the ways for me that I felt better where I loved the idea that I was, you know, blessing people in my mind with stuff that I was not going to use. Like it wasn't doing me any good. So maybe it could do someone else some good. And that felt really good to me. I liked that idea. Now, it might not work for everyone. Other people might not like it. That's okay. But for me, I did. I also, I liked the idea of eventually, slowly, gradually making space for new things in my life. I liked, for instance, in the master closet that when I walked in, because it, there was a certain point where it felt so heavy to have the stuff around because of all the thoughts I had about it that not having it there anymore felt a little bit lighter. And also at the same time, not having it there felt sad. That's why I, I really want people to hear that from where I sit, it's it's not that it's right or wrong or good or bad or better or worse. It's the and of the human experience and the and of grief. It, it will feel lighter to you in ways. It will feel more sad to you in ways. And and if we're prepared for that and we don't expect, well, if I get rid of all the stuff, then all of a sudden I'll feel better, right? And then when that is not our lived experience, so let's just prepare ourselves for, okay, the grass isn't going to be greener on the other side of getting rid of this stuff. In some ways it is, in some ways it's not. I'm still going to be a human. I'm still going to have all the feelings. So I don't have to rush, right? And when I do decide, it's okay if there's some pain involved. Does that make sense? Yeah. Embracing the pain, right? The pain's inevitable. (laughs) We're not getting away from it. We can minimize the suffering, but we're not getting away from the pain. Did you keep any of Hugo's items? And if so, how did you decide the ones to keep? Hmm. Yeah, I did keep quite a lot of his items. And some of them I just kept because, you know, paperwork things that I wasn't quite sure if I would need again. And so out of you know, an overabundance of precaution, I kept them. Then other things that were just a little bit more sentimental in nature uh, that, you know, reminded me of him, made me smile, were unique to him. Those are the kinds of things that were easy to keep. And then again, it kind of evolved over time. So it's now been almost seven years. Even some of his clothes that I kept and sometimes would wear most of them eventually, or my daughter would wear them or my son would wear them. Then, you know, eventually some of them wore out, you know, so we ended up getting rid of them. But yeah, some things we kept. Um, and it was mostly just things that really had a lot of meaning and and made me smile when I looked at them. So when we're talking about the how of how to embark on this 
grief-filled and perhaps physically difficult. We're talking about perhaps big items, definitely emotionally trying, decluttering journey. What do you suggest for your listeners and your clients who want to know, well, where do we start? How do we keep going? What are your best tips? Yeah. So best tips are, first of all, no pressure on yourself. Even in my, I run a six month group coaching program and one of the months we focus on our relationship with stuff. And so it's, you know, it's their belongings, it's other physical things, it's money, things like that. And I think sometimes people come into the program expecting that they're going to have to deal with the stuff. And then they find such a relief when they realize that they're in charge of when they decide to deal with the stuff and that I'm not going to force them, right? And they're, they're actually not better if they do or don't. So I think that's a huge important part of the how is letting yourself be the boss of if and when you decide and and letting whatever you know that way is for you be the right way for you. It might not be the way your mom did it. It might not be the way your sister does it, but it can be the right way for you. And then I think in grief, especially most people in your life who love you are really looking for ways to help you. And they don't particularly enjoy the feeling of watching you in pain and them not really being able to fix or change it. And so giving people the opportunity to help you with stuff can be a great way for both them to feel like they're contributing and to take a little bit of load off of you. So in whatever way you're comfortable, it's not you know, morally superior to do this on your own. It's not a sign of strength to do this on your own. If it feels right to you, do it on your own. I did a lot of it on my own, but it's also an opportunity to let other people help and they can come in and maybe you go around your house and you put post-it notes on the things that you want to be removed from your house, but maybe you're not the one who removes them, right? Maybe you actually have somebody else help with that. Maybe you leave and you let them do it if you don't want to do it right? There's all kinds of different ways to do it. It's just giving yourself permission and, and then having your own back about it. Right. Yeah. I think about decluttering when there's no emotion involved and it's hard even when there's no emotion. So adding on the grief and the sentiment associated with decluttering a deceased loved one stuff, that just adds a hurricane tornado into something that's already really darn hard. And you're so right when you say that our loved ones, they want to help us, especially when we're grieving. And so perhaps for some people that might look like, okay, I'm going to go through the stuff. I'm going to go through the boxes by myself because I would like to do that in a solitary way. However, if I give you some bags, can you find worthy recipients from them. I know that for me personally, if somebody asked me to do that, I would jump because when I see somebody suffering, grieving, I don't know what to do for them. I would love to help in some way. And so if that person then told me, well, this is something concrete you could do, I would be thrilled to help. Yeah, totally. And I think sometimes too, we can give ourselves such a gift when there's maybe types of items where we don't understand those items, you know, so maybe if you're not a computer person and you, you know, or an electronics person and you have electronics to work through, somebody in your world is probably really good at that. Or maybe, you know, for me, a lot of stuff in the garage, I didn't know what a lot of that stuff was. He had all sorts of stuff. I didn't know. Right. But I did have people in my lives who could, 
who could come and look and say, oh, okay, this is definitely trash, right? No one's going to want this item. It took the emotion out of it for me. And also, I just genuinely didn't have the expertise to know left from right there. And people around you probably do if you ask them. Talk to me about what you call indecision drama. What on earth is it? And what thoughts do you have for listeners struggling? <laughs> I see this so in so many places. It's not just stuff, right? But it's it does happen a lot with stuff, which is, you know, there's there's not making a decision and being okay with it. There's making a decision and being okay with it. And then there's everything in the middle, which is the indecision drama of, you know, not really giving yourself permission one way or the other, right? It's not that a decision is, is again, it's not better or worse, but think about when you are thinking about a decision and you are in indecision, how much energy gets sucked into that process. Meanwhile, the thinking and contemplating and ruminating doesn't actually get us any more data beyond a certain point. So really what we're, we're, typically trying to do, and it makes total sense why we do it, is we're trying to avoid some sort of negative emotion, right? We're worried that we're going to make the quote unquote wrong decision or that we're going to have regret after we make the decision. And so we hold off on the decision and we cause ourselves all of this misery in the indecision, which really doesn't change anything about the, the actual decision, right? When we make a decision, it's done in an instant, the actual decision, everything leading up to it can be a huge energy suck. So if we decide, and I truly believe this, if we decide that we will have our own back, we will be our own champion on the other side of any decision we make, decisions get a lot easier and we reduce the indecision drama, right? If I know that on the other side of making a decision, I'm not going to say mean things to myself, even if I later decide I I wish I hadn't made that decision, I'm still not going to be mean to myself about it. And on the other side of that decision, even if I feel some regret, it's just an emotion. I can let it flow through me. I know how to allow feelings to pass through, right? So if I can handle feelings and I know I'm not going to be mean to myself, I can have so much less drama around indecision. What I like about our conversation, Krista, is that it's less about the stuff, like what do we do with the stuff? It's more about empowering the person who's left with the stuff to know and understand on a cellular level that they're in the driver's seat, they're in charge, and nothing they do is going to be the wrong choice. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, the, what makes a choice wrong, right? What makes a choice wrong is that we decide to believe it's wrong. And we get to be the boss of what we decide to believe. And in the grand scheme, our loved ones, wherever they are, <laughs> they're not concerned about their stuff, right? So it's our burden. Yeah, it's a burden we put on ourselves with our thinking, which is the best news ever because it's also a burden we can remove from ourselves with our thinking. So I'm saying it's not about the stuff, but I do have one more stuff-related question, which is when we talk about memorializing a person with their items, I've heard a lot of tips and tricks over the years. One, of course, is to keep a part of a whole and then display it. So a great example of this would be my grandmother's china. She gave me her china. I don't need her china because I already have like three sets of my own china that I've gotten from this, that, and the other relative. So I kept a cup and saucer and I put it in my curio, um, keeping a part of a whole. Or I talked to one woman once, her deceased loved one was a guitarist. So she, of course, kept the guitar, but she placed it in a fancy display box and made it prominent in the home. 
so we decided we're, what we're going to keep of our loved one. It has some sort of great sentimental value to us. That's why we're keeping it. Do you have any ideas of like how to incorporate the item into our homes and therefore into our lives so that the memory, the happy memories of the person also stay with us? Yeah, I don't think, again, I don't think there's a wrong way to do it, but I like putting things that remind me of Hugo in places that I know I will see them and appreciate when I'm seeing them, right? So I have a lot of his things in my office, the little things that I have. Sometimes people will create boxes where they keep like a trunk or some sort of box, but it's a beautiful box, a box that they they like having in their home, right? Not just like a storage container, but an actual box that inside that box contains mementos and that they can go through and look at them when they they feel like they want to look at them so that they aren't quite so visible, right? I tend to like things to be visible, but that's not for everyone. I also think it's an amazing idea to take pictures of those things that you think you might want to remember before you get rid of them. It's so easy to make a digital photo album these days, right? You can take pictures and then just create a little album too of, of things before you part with them. And I do have a lot of clients because I work with widows and most of them Many of them have young children. Some of them have grown children, but we'll take shirts, you know, or other items of clothing and have teddy bears made, you know, which I always think is lovely too. Things that, that remind you of them and, and can um, bring comfort to little kids is always a good idea. Yes. And what about saving some items for our children once grown? Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think you can do that wrong either. Again, just be careful that you aren't trying to save more than you want to save. And the only reason you're doing it is because you're going to be mean to yourself later if the kids wish you had saved something you hadn't. That's not the reason we want to save stuff. But I for sure did. And I just created tubs. And especially um, Hugo's... So Hugo was married before we were married. And so he had a son from that marriage as well. And so I saved, you know, probably more stuff from his childhood that Hugo had because I didn't have the memories that went with that stuff. And I didn't want to be the one that made those decisions. So I just saved it in the corner of my garage. And every once in a while, when he was around, we would go through something, right? And then didn't put any pressure on it. Stuff stayed in my garage until I moved out of my house. I still have one tub left (laughs) and it's fine, right? But, um, you know, some sometimes I have seen people really hold on to so much stuff out of fear, and that's what I would caution against. But it's not fear of usually of what the child will think. It's fear that they will be mean to themselves if the child gets upset later. Before we say goodbye, I'd love to circle back to the start of our conversation. You had mentioned around the three-month mark, something shifted inside of you, for lack of a better phrase, and you felt ready to open the closet. How can listeners who are listening right now know when it might be time to open a closet or open a box and uh, look through it? Yeah. I think they, I just want people to trust themselves, right? Just trust that you will know. It's not that there's a particular way that you need to know. It's that you will have a knowing and it will be different for every single person. And an expert really can't tell you what's happening on the inside of you, but I think you will just know. And so if you can decide that that's true for you, 
that you will know when the time is right and you can just trust that within you, then you don't have to worry about reading any more articles or do's and don'ts or rights and wrongs. You can just say, no, I will know. I, I always know. That's the take-home message. Trust yourself. Trust your decisions. There's no podcast episode. There's no blog article that can tell you <laughs> what you likely already know inside. I think that's that's the final word for today's show. Krista, tell us about your work, your podcast, where we can find you. Tell us all of it. So the Widowed Mom podcast is my podcast, and it is obviously quite specific, but I do have a lot of listeners who listen to it just because they're interested in learning about grief or maybe supporting someone that they love. And then coachingwithkrista.com is, uh, is my website, and that's where you can find all the information about me and where to connect. Well, Krista, I am amazed at your strength and how you created a platform for which to help other moms going through exactly what you went through. So I think that is so amazing and inspiring, a silver lining, perhaps. So thank you so much for coming on this show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Listeners, that's a wrap. Show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 358. Before we say goodbye today, we do have a quick eco tip and it comes from listener Laura. Laura wanted me to mention that when we're clearing out our medicine cabinet, it is definitely worth checking with our county or our city or town to see if it offers medicine disposal. Laura says that the suburb she lives in offers it, and it's so easy to drop off the expired medicine in her medicine cabinet. And so it's worth a quick check. Maybe your town offers it, and if so, yay. She also wanted me to mention, too, that, of course, nail polish is considered hazardous waste. It should not be put in the trash can. You should be holding onto it until a hazardous waste collection in your area, just like you would do with paint or stain. So thank you so much for the reminders, Laura. I will see you all on Thursday, where we are talking about where America's discards actually go. We're talking the clothing mountain in Ghana, we're talking the landfill fire that's currently ablaze in Alabama. We're talking the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. We throw the stuff in our trash can or our recycling bin. We think it's out of sight. It is definitely out of mind, but it shouldn't be because this stuff doesn't just disappear. That's what we're talking about on Thursday, and I will see you then.